This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. We had a chance to catch up with Ralph Wilsey, the man who did all of that on February 22nd, 1968, at that concert in London. And Ralph started off telling us first what it was like to be there that night. It was a concert of uh, kind of the royal family of country music, you know. On the one side, the Carters, Maybelle and her daughters, and on the other side, uh, Johnny Cash, who'd been through the rockabilly stage and was now, um, I guess you would call him a country star. Although there's some dispute about that, whether he was actually country or more of a, I don't know, hard to put him in a category, right? (laughs) He was his own. Yep, that's right. And at the same time, they are performing, and no one knows that this is going to happen. No one even knows how serious this was meant to be. But we'll get to the proposal that took place at the London Gardens. But as far as you go, you had a pretty important spot, it turns out, because, again, there wasn't a lot of coverage of this. Johnny Cash tended to perform in this area quite a bit, so the fact that he was in London didn't seem to be that big a deal. But at the same time, you were there as the only photographer. Well, that's right. Now, you are aware eh, that his manager, John, uh, Saul Holliff, is from London. Um, and he uh, often started his tours in London. Uh, in this case, I was working, I was taking a year off from university. I was working for Micron Studios. And they did some work for Holliff. And I was trying to, we knew that Cash was going to be in town, and I wanted to see if we could get him into the studio at Micron and photograph him with this big 8x10 camera that we had. Well, that never happened. So on my own time that evening, I took my own equipment uh, out to the gardens and my uh, Gazette press card from the previous year (laughs) and um, somehow conned my way in, and I thought, well, that would be enough. But the next thing I know, they've taken me to this... this, uh, door and the door opens and there's Johnny Cash himself and of course I didn't have any questions prepared I didn't even think I was going to get in what I should have said is Mr. Cash I hear you just got your divorce are you going to propose to June tonight but I didn't know that and uh, <laughs> and um, Saul Hoff thought that he may have done that that particular night um, as a gesture to Hoff in gratitude for what he had done in uh, bringing Cash up in the entertainment world quite a bit. Um, but we, we don't exactly, I mean, nobody really knows why it was that night, except that it was their first performance after his divorce came through. So I think that's maybe why it happened. We're talking with Ralph Wilsey, and Ralph was at the Johnny Carter and June Carter Cash concert that took place on February 22nd of 1968. Johnny Cash would have been 88 years old today. And so you you didn't even have credentials to get in, but you managed to get in using an old Gazette, Western Gazette, press pass, and and then all of a sudden you're there standing in front of Johnny Cash. What happened after that? Well, I said uh, I was there mostly to take pictures. Could I come in and take some pictures of everybody getting ready for the show? And he said, no, you can't. There's ladies in here. You can't come in. And so uh, um, I just uh, went out and started taking pictures of the crowd, I guess. But in those days, you had complete access to the whole show. And I was just 
at the foot of the stage, just feet away from them. Today, if you're photographing a, a big-time concert, you get to shoot the first three songs, and then they kick you out of the photo pit because they don't want you getting pictures of people sweaty or disheveled or whatever. But in those days, you could I, I, could, I stayed there all night, and uh, I, I shot five or six rolls of film, and, and most of them turned out. <laughs> and some of those pictures have become quite important and quite famous. Where have they gone? Well, I uh, I've, I sold them to the, uh, in advance of the 50th anniversary, I sold them to the Johnny Cash Foundation. But there is one print, as I understand it, that hangs in the London uh, Music Hall, Hall of Fame on Dundas Street, if anybody ever wanted to see one of the prints. Yeah, no, that is absolutely fantastic. Okay, so take us through the show, Ralph. When exactly did this proposal take place? Well, um they started with opening acts, as you might imagine, the Statler brothers, the um, uh, Carl Perkins, um, Johnny's brother. Uh, anyway, um, then it, uh, John came out and did some songs, and then uh, June and the um, and her mother and sisters came out and did some songs, and then John and came out and he and June did some songs together that they had done recently on an album called. Um, Johnny Cash carrying on with June Carter, something like that. And then partway through the show, uh, they were between songs, and he turned to her and said, June, will you marry me? And um, she hummed and hawed a bit, but um, then finally she said, yes. Now, if you saw that movie that came out in 2005 or whatever, they make that moment last about 20 minutes. It was closer to 20 seconds or maybe 30 seconds, it seemed like to me. And then they just carried on. And so I assumed that this was just part of the show, uh, assuming that nothing big time like that happens in my hometown. I'd never seen anything like that. So I didn't really think too much about the proposal part of it. I was more interested to see how the pictures turned out. But about a week later, there was a notice in the paper that uh, Johnny and June had been married uh, in a little town up on the the line between uh, Tennessee and Kentucky, and uh, they were husband and wife. And had it been big news, Ralph, that Johnny Cash was getting a divorce going into the show? No, I don't think that was common knowledge. Um, no, I, I didn't know that. I don't know that anybody did. There is very little publicity. There's no publicity about the show. I went through the Free Press and the National Archives later on, and all I found was about a uh, half a column ad saying that this show would be at the, at the gardens. Mind you, it was sold out because there were a lot of Johnny Cash fans, but we weren't in the mainstream at all. Um, they had just recorded the Folsom Prison album, which is one of the great classics of the 20th century, uh, just before that, and it came out that fall. And then from then on... Um, a lot of things changed. Luther Perkins, the guitar player, uh, died in August, and um, before he, uh, Cash took another direction. He got a TV show, and he became a different person altogether, and I sort of drifted away, but uh, anyway, they, uh, they lived a, a fairly long and happy life together and had their child, John Carter Cash, and, um, and he carries on the the family foundation.
Absolutely. We're talking with Ralph Wilsey, who was there on that February 22nd, 1968 night as the only photographer there as Johnny Cash proposed to June Carter Cash. You were here going to school, and then did you hang around London long? Well, I, uh, I re- returned to Western the, the, the next year, and uh, I had been taking journalism. I finished up in political science, and uh, not too long after that, I moved out to Alberta, where I met my wife, and we lived for 10 years or so before coming back to eastern Ontario. Well, all right. Now, you didn't happen to propose to her on stage anywhere, just to, just to you know, be the second guy to do that in, uh, in a short span of time? Not me. Not me, man. <laughs> Rob, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for sharing the story with us. Well, thanks. Thanks for your interest. We have an opportunity to talk about the music world as it stands right now. Talk about rock, how it stands right now. Because we're very lucky to have with us, from Broken Love, a guy who, well, has some opinions on music and rock and how things are moving. Justin Ben Lolo. Justin, thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me, man. So let's talk a little bit, because people will yell out the words, rock and roll is dead. They've been trying to do that, I don't know. Long time. Forever. Probably, probably going back to before you were born. Oh, for sure. You're another one of those people that proves, no, 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 no. That's it. Guitars are still being bought and sold and played. Bass still being bought and sold and played. Drums. Uh, what is it about rock that got you to be as passionate as you are about it? I mean, there's just a real raw energy you get from it that you don't really get from from anything else. And when people play the instruments, that human element, it's sort of impossible not to feel a connection with that. And also what I like about rock is like the sort of purging, you know, of nature of it. It's so, sort of cathartic and it makes you feel things, you know, maybe not necessarily good, maybe not necessarily bad, but it makes you feel a lot of things. And I feel like it's a good place to put your emotions into. And I got connected to it um, because of that sort of thing. Sometimes it will take someone to get you connected yep. to it. You heard Zeppelin pretty yeah, young. How, how young were you? I think the first time I was probably like six years old, six or seven, and it was like the immigrant song or something like that, which was like the heaviest thing I'd ever heard ever, <laughs> you know? I mean, at the time, like I was already listening to like Eminem and like 50 Cent and stuff. So, cause that's what the kids were listening to. And I was young and, you know, we just had like our first iPods and all that kind of stuff. Um, but my uncle showed me Zeppelin and Kiss and Sabbath and it just blew my mind, you know, just it was so abrasive. Like, cause I mean, obviously my parents wouldn't show that to me cause it's like not... You know, he's a young kid, you know, it was the devil's music, whatever it is, you know, but my uncle was super, super cool. And he, uh, he kind of took me under his wing at a really young age. And it sounds like you had one of those experiences where you hear it and it does something to you. Oh yeah. No, immediately I was obsessed. I was obsessed with rock. I wanted to play guitar. I was playing hockey at the time and I just constantly begged my parents to like, let me, you know, put down the, the hockey stick and pick up a guitar till they finally actually let me do it when I was like 11. Okay. But they kept saying, oh, you're not going to practice. You're not going to play. You know, if we do get it for you, you have to practice and all this and that. But um, it helped having my uncle because he was a great guitar player. So he sort of showed me the ropes too when I first started playing and inspired me to play as well. That's outstanding. Yeah. Justin Benlolo with us from Broken Love. And we're talking about rock as it exists now. What would you say about rock as it exists now? Is it a genre that is is starting to grow again? We've got a lot of bands that we keep hearing, yours yeah. being one of them. 
I think it's interesting because, um, you know, rock is sort of a mainstay. It's kind of funny. You know, they've, they've done um, studies basically like analytically about on streaming platforms, basically, where they find that rock is actually the only genre that has the most consistent amount of fans uh, um, based like on, on a long term sort of uh, platform or whatever that is, you know, which makes sense to me because rock fans really glue, you know, they really like attach to the people they like. And um, they're just they're just more open, I think, also to liking other bands. Whereas I feel like in other genres, you're sort of told what to like, especially in pop and all that kind of stuff. And not denouncing that at all. I like a lot of pop music, but pop, it's like here today, gone tomorrow. Like this person today. OK, tomorrow, forget about them. This is the guy now um, with rock. People really, really get attached to it and really connect with it more. And uh, I feel like today it's thriving more than ever. I mean, you know, with with streaming platforms and, and YouTube and all that kind of stuff, you could find bands all the time. You know, and also I find with rock now, people want to find more rock. So people are more willing to show up to shows and people are more willing to dig deeper because it's not always put in your face all the time because radio is not pumping it out, at least mainstream wise anymore. And uh, a lot of like big media, it's all pop and hip hop, you know, again, not a bad thing, but I feel like rock is sort of coming back not out of the outer underground, but just it was sleeping for a bit and it's waking up a little bit more because people are hungry for it and people are actively searching for it. In terms of putting together shows, where do you target in order to be found? Well, you know, right now, unfortunately, we don't even have the choice of doing that. Uh, we just open for bands. So our agent, our agents who, who kick butt, um, they just throw us out there and try to get us in front of a bunch of big bands that could hopefully take us on the road. Um, like Royal Tusk, we're playing with tonight. And uh, and we just sort of go along with it. They're like, okay, you got to play here. We go, okay, cool. Because if they can pull an audience in that area, we'll go out there. Um, right now, we're a new band. We don't have a ton of pull. We can't headline our own tours yet. But, you know, the uh, the whole point of doing these tours and going to places where these other bands have fans is to sort of like steal them, basically. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> we're talking with Justin Ben Lolo of Broken Love in town tonight. Give us the details on the show. So we're playing a Rum Runners tonight. Uh, I think we hit the stage around 8 or 8.30. I don't know exactly yet. But that's that's be... a true style of rock, though. You, you can't give a time in rock, Dude, right? I have no clue. It, it changes every single night. You know, it also depends how we feel. We're like, I don't know, we're going to go in a little later tonight, <laughs> you know? And if it's a hometown show, we played in Edmonton with Royal Tusk, who's, um, that's their hometown show. We didn't play like 10.30, which is like apparently normal for Edmonton, but I don't know how, how it works in London. I mean, I live in Toronto, so it's not too far away, but... Uh, I don't know how the how the rock scene works over here, but so they'll I'm wait gonna, for you. I'm gonna ballpark around like eight o'clock is a good time to okay. show up. But All there's right. a there's a, a really really great uh, opening band called Sights and Sounds who are amazing and have been on the whole tour with us as well. And uh, they'll be right before us, and it'll just be a really great great night of rock. With rock, maybe more so than other genres, you can cover other band songs coming in. I don't know how you would do that in pop. I, you know, you're sure you could try a Taylor Swift song, but I don't know if you're going to do it justice. You can get some amazing covers. Is that a way that you found yourself getting in or were you guys more about, no, let's let's do our thing? Well, of course, like when you're in high school and you start playing music, you know, the first thing you do as a young Canadian is go to your buddy who can play the drums and go, "Hey man, let's let's uh let's jam this weekend and play as many Rush songs as we know." You know, like <laughs> That was the way we all did it. And then we play at school and play like Green Day and Pearl Jam and Nirvana. And like, that's how we all started doing it. You know, I mean, even on, on my own, like when I first started playing guitar, you just sit down. I learned like 
you know, the first three Kiss records, like just all the guitar parts and then singing those songs. And then eventually, you know, you can sort of make your own thing. But we definitely, I mean, we do a cover every single night. Oh, yeah? You know, yeah, we actually do a cover of uh, War Pigs. Oh, no uh, way. Like Sabbath, you know. All right. Um, so we do that every single night just because it's fun and it's good for people who don't know who we are to know a song that they definitely should know, you know? <laughs> um, so, you know, we like to mix it up and it's always fun to do covers because it takes you out of like your own zone for a minute. I also do enjoy doing covers of like other genres too, because you can put a spin on it. Like there's a lot of great rock versions of pop songs or hip hop songs or stuff like that. I find, like you said, it's hard to do it the other way around, you know? Like, you could do a really heavy cover of, like, Beat It by Michael Jackson. Sure. Because like, it makes sense. It, like, kind of presents its way. It presents itself that way. Um, excuse me. But, um, you know, I couldn't see Taylor Swift doing, like, a really pop version of, like, you know, Enter Sandman or something like that. Like, <laughs> But at the end of the day, that being said, those songs, like, Enter Sandman's a great song. So you could do a lot of things with it if you get the right person behind it. I just, you know, I think in a in a more just direct sense, it makes more sense to take those songs and bring them over to our side of the field whereas doing it the other way around is definitely a little more challenging and people have i think a few more like choice words about it you know <laughs> justin ben lolo with us as a final question what is the dream what would you like to realize in doing this would it be just have fun or is there a, a mountain you want to get to i want dave Grohl to like my band there we go yeah okay that's sort of the ultimate goal that's you know? amazing because I mean, that could that could happen it, it could very well happen dave know? Grohl to like your band and then i'm set I love it. And I could die happy. That is one of the greatest goals I've ever heard in my life. (laughs) Tonight, Rum Runners on stage. If you're there at eight, you should be okay. They'll they'll be out there, but you will be able to see Broken Love. Do not miss it. These guys appreciate what it is they're doing, and that's, uh, that's more than half the battle. All the best, Justin. Thanks for the time. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. We have an opportunity right now to speak with a lawyer whose practice is very focused on both of those things, bullying and cyberbullying. Please welcome Jasmine Dea to London Live. Jasmine, thanks for taking some time for us. Thank you so much for having me. Jasmine, when you focus in on bullying and cyberbullying, it leads the rest of us to think, whoa, I, I was hoping bullying would be kind of on, on the downturn. But now, if you're able to specialize in cases, how would you describe the number of cases that you come across? The number is increasing at an alarming rate, and it's really upsetting. As a mother of three children myself and as a lawyer, I cannot tell you how many stories I have heard where I am listening to parents, I'm in shock, I'm wondering how these parents are holding it together. I myself am just holding back tears with that knot in my throat when I hear the types of stories I'm hearing. Wow. Okay. And when you're when you're looking at these stories, do they have similarities? There's this, the one common thread are actions of individuals that I don't believe recognize how how severe the consequences will be of their actions. So you have young people saying things, doing things, posting things on social media, sending messages through Snapchat or through text to other individuals, not recognizing the impact that it's going to have on the person that becomes the victim. 
And unlike bullying, so when you had bullying, it was, you know, a little scuffle in the schoolyard, some taunting, but you could leave that behind when you left school and go to your safe place, go home, be with your family. With cyberbullying, you can't escape it. You, it doesn't matter where you go. Whatever has been said about you is out there, and it could be out there permanently. There's no way to erase what is out there. And so it's inescapable. We're talking with Jasmine Dea, who is a lawyer and is someone who deals with cases that typically center on bullying and cyberbullying and the idea that those now have to involve the law. And we'll talk about how that transition is made. Jasmine, we have so many things that are happening now. We In London, we have the Upstander program. In London, we have, as many places do, Pink Shirt Day, which is taking place today, encouraging people to recognize things, to, to look at ways of, of perhaps curtailing bullying. And yet you're talking about things being on the rise. Do you believe any of the initiatives are having an impact? Or is it just the fact that it's so much easier to bully these days that it becomes more prevalent? I think that the initiatives are doing well and we need to continue to focus efforts on those initiatives. But the issue is that the number of individuals, the number of young children with devices is also increasing. I mean, you've got every young child that's in a waiting room at a doctor's office or uh, at restaurants. Everyone's got an iPad or an iPhone. And so they all have access to technology at an increasing rate, which means that people are um, engaging in bullying and cyberbullying at also an increasing rate because they don't always recognize what their actions will mean in the future. So in terms of finding the connection between the schoolyard or parent to parent or wherever it would happen to go that may have been where the containment stopped, how do these cases get to you? What is happening and, and what are maybe even the charges that can come up with regard to bullying? If there is an incident, if you suspect that your child is the victim of bullying, my advice is to first go and research the situation. You want to, you want to advise the school teachers. You want to notify the school principal, have conversations, see if that can rectify the issue. Uh, if you need to escalate, then you're going to go to the school board superintendent. Talk to them. See if that will deal with the issue. You might want to reach out to the parents of the bully if you feel comfortable with that. Um, you know, some parents are very open to a conversation to try to help. And then you have some parents that say, no, not my child. They would never do that. So you don't always know what you're going to get. Um, if you believe that there is some criminal activity, so cyberbullying involving criminal harassment, threats, intimidation, extortion, anything on the criminal side, you definitely want to report things to the police so they can do a proper investigation. Um, hopefully, going to a personal injury lawyer is a last resort. I am happy to help, but I would rather not see these cases happen altogether. I think it's a very sad situation. But when people are coming to me, it's it's because they've exhausted all other resources. And now they need help from a compensation perspective. Um, if, I, if I can continue along, I'll give you one quick example uh, of a child, um, of, it's not my child, but I call them my children, one of my young clients. Um, she was on suicide watch for several weeks and went, she missed months of school and she had to be home. Her mother took time off work. Her mother then 
uh, was not being paid, was unable to keep up with the bills. She wasn't able to pay the mortgage. And now the mother is either going to have to sell the house or is at risk of losing her house to the bank. So there's the reason they've come to me is because there are these other issues now uh, where they're seeking compensation. Isn't that remarkable that something that would start in, say, a schoolyard or inside a classroom or somewhere that would seem relatively innocent, even though all of us who have been through things like this know it's not necessarily innocent, but you wouldn't think it would have the ability to go that far, but you're seeing it go that far. I am seeing it going that far, and I think it's really important to make people aware that we're not talking about just pushing or shoving or teasing. We're talking about ongoing, repeated behavior that causes significant psychological ramifications to the victim. Um, I have a client that started cutting herself. I've got clients, as I said, on suicide watch. I have clients that suffer from PTSD, anxiety, depression, and these issues are going to be lifelong. I also have clients that have pre-existing conditions, so they're already susceptible. And when you compound that with what they're dealing with in the schools or online, um, you know, that's that's going to make life really tough for them. And when it comes to starting a lawsuit, it's not that we are saying to the bully necessarily, to the person that engaged in these actions, that this was your fault, you young child. You know, I'm looking at the bigger picture. If the school knew that there was bullying and chose to do nothing about it, you know, how is that okay? We've entrusted our children to the education system uh, that is provided for them. How is it okay that our children are not being properly taken care of. Jasmine Dea joining us from Jasmine Dea and Company in Toronto, personal injury attorney, and we're talking about bullying and cyberbullying. Now, Jasmine, because you deal with so many of these cases, how often do you find that a parent will say, hey, we went to the school, we tried, and there wasn't anything they can do? Does that happen? Yes. I, I hate to say it because I know how hard our educators work. I know how hard our teachers work, and I know there's a lot going on with teachers uh, in Ontario right now. Um, but, you know, in the cases that I have seen, I just don't see that enough was done to prevent the situation. And, you know, sometimes it's a balancing act where the schools, in a way, their hands are tied to some degree, or at least they feel their hands are tied because they have to balance the interests of both sides. Um, and, you know, they can't take away rights from one child to try to help the other. I've heard everything. But when it comes to the safety and well-being of our children, and I see a child that doesn't want to live anymore, that wants to end their life, and the schools fail to do something about it, I'm sorry, I, I just don't see the balancing act there. I think the choice is clear. Jasmine, finally, what would you recommend if someone hears that their child is bullying or if someone has a child who is being bullied? I would recommend continuing ongoing communications with the child. Uh, First and foremost, you want to make sure your child feels like they can come to you. Um, You want to constantly communicate, keep your eye out to see warning signs. Is the child being bullied? Uh, Then you want to communicate with everyone that's involved, uh, caregivers, um, teachers, doctors, anyone that can help with the situation. You want to involve them and make sure that the best result is coming for their children. Well, Jasmine, thank you so much for 
talking with us today and looking at this from the angle that you do, it's it's pretty wild to think that you're using the word extortion and you trace it back and, and it goes to bullying. Yeah, I know. It's it's very sad. And hopefully with the awareness like what we have today on Pink Shirt Day, we will see a decrease in what we've seen in recent years. Here's hoping. Jasmine, all the best. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to the London Live podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.